my pleasure to be with all of you this afternoon. Um, first of all, before I introduce the other two speakers, I'd, I'd like to say thank you uh, to the Department of Philosophy who co-sponsored this, but also to the uh, uh, library, Falby Library staff. They've been so gracious, uh, Nick Vogel especially, uh, when we were uh, putting this book together, um, I had to convert a lot of PDF files to Word files for the Georgetown University Press, and Nick helped me get clean copies that were convertible, and uh, so uh, he saved me a lot of work, uh, and I really do appreciate it. Um, also, I'd like to thank uh, Catherine Fogarty, who uh, wrote all the bios for the people who wrote articles, and uh, she is acknowledged in the book that I'd like to acknowledge here today. Um, first, I'd like to introduce uh, Dan Reed. Uh, Dan graduated as a biology major in 2014, and uh, he also inst interned for Art Kaplan over the summer, and um, Dan was, um, took my uh, Ethics for Healthcare professional course when he was a freshman, and uh, we became fairly friendly, and he, he was very interested in that. Dan's planning on going to medical school eventually. Uh, but he um, came to me after that course was over and asked if he could possibly um, be a student, a student assistant for me. Uh, so for the next three years, his sophomore, junior, and senior year, he was my student assistant in healthcare ethics, and uh, I know Dan's skills, and I knew when we were thinking of putting this book together that he would be a wonderful uh, person to get permissions and do a lot of the legwork that's involved. So I asked that he graciously accepted, and he knew it was going to be a lot of work, which it was, but uh, he, uh, he also benefited from it by having his name as one of the co-editors. Uh, Dan's been active here at Villanova in student musicals and plays, uh, and he's also um, been involved with the Bergen County Theater um, in, uh, in serious drama and musicals. Uh, he uh, last performed in, well, it's Pinocchio, the last one, but before that, Guys and Dolls. <laughs> Guys and Dolls was excellent, I saw it, he did a good job. Uh, and uh, he, he now works for his parents in accounting and has been applying to medical schools. Hopefully he'll get a positive response soon. Uh, Art Kaplan um, is probably needs no introduction. Anytime there's a bioethics issue uh, globally, uh, art popped up on television and uh, uh, has a, usually something very good to say. Art's one of those talented people that can speak in sound bites, and that's why the media like him very much. He can say a lot with a few words. Uh, he's the, currently the uh, Dr. William F. and Virginia Conley Mitty Professor and founding head of the Division of Bioethics at New York University Langone Medical Center in New York City. He's a co-founder and dean of research of the New York Sports and Society Program and he the head of the ethics program in the Global Institute for Public Health at New York University. Prior to coming to NYU, he was Sidney D. Callahan, Sidney D. Kaplan Professor of Bioethics at the University of Pennsylvania Perelman School of Medicine in Philadelphia, where he created the Center for Bioethics and the Department of Medical Ethics. He's also taught at the University of Minnesota, where he founded the Center for Biomedical Ethics. University of Pittsburgh and Columbia University. He received his PhD from Columbia University. Uh, Art is also the author or editor of 32 books and over 600 papers in peer-reviewed journals. Uh, this is his most uh, recent book. Um, we have had the pleasure of knowing each other since uh, the early 70s, or late 70s, when we did our first uh, book. And it's Concepts of Health and Disease, Interdisciplinary Perspectives which we did with H. Tristan Engelhardt also, uh, who's also a famous bioethicist. 
Um, he served on a number of international and international committees, and I'm not going to list all of them because we would be here all afternoon. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he likes it. And he's also currently the ethics advisor on synthetic biology, a member of the National Council of Youth Sports Safety, a member of the Ethics and Ebola Working Group of the World Health Organization. He also serves as chairperson of the Compassionate Use Advisory Committee, an independent group of internationally recognized medical experts, bioethicists, and patient representatives, which advises uh, Janssen, Johnson & Johnson about requests for compassionate use of some of its drugs. Art writes a column on bioethics for NBC.com. I recommend those articles. They're really very good, usually. Uh, sometimes I agree with them, sometimes I don't, but they're always very thought-provoking. Uh, he's a commentator on bioethics and healthcare issues for WebMD slash Medscape. He's a regular commentator on medicine and science for WGBH Radio in Boston and WMNF Public Radio in Tampa. He appears frequently as a guest and commentator on various other national and international media outlets. Kaplan's art is the recipient of many awards and honors, and he holds several honorary degrees from colleges and medical schools. He's a fellow of the Hastings Center, the New York Academy of Medicine, the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, the American College of Legal Medicine, and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. It gives me really great pleasure to introduce my friend and uh, collaborator, Arthur L. Kaplan. So I have to uh, fact check Jim's introduction. Um, first of all, it's pretty clear that he can't do a book without me. Um, <laughs> but is it, three of your four books are with me or have me connected to them somehow. And that's to balance his radical uh, views. <laughs> um, secondly, uh, we did meet back in the uh, uh, 70s, I, I guess it was, late 70s. Uh, I had just uh, finished my PhD at Columbia, and you were just entering, actually, into bioethics uh, as a uh, person interested in Georgetown. It was also funny because in those days, Georgetown was the religiously affiliated bioethics program and Hastings was the secular one. So there was this funny competition sometimes, not always, but sometimes between Georgetown and Hastings. And I don't think um, Jim ever understood it. I didn't really uh, get it. But uh, it, it, it led to a kind of uh, behind-the-scenes alliance or marriage or something that has still uh, gone on for many decades. The other uh, things he neglected to mention in the uh, introduction is that um, we've spent a lot of time together uh, in my homes. And one of the reasons I'm here today a little casually attired is I had the uh, distinct privilege of going to Aruba last week. I mean, Jim actually travels to all these kind of places. You know, he's not impressed. It's sort of like, yeah, okay, good. There you go, there you go. Every time I look, he's like, I'm going. Um, and he's not inviting me, I noticed. But the um, uh, uh, trip to Aruba was great, but it ended in disaster because of the storm. So we couldn't get out of there. Uh, but um, by the time we did get out of there, they flew us to Toronto, and then they canceled the connector. So I had to drive down the New York, I rented a car and went down the New York Thruway, uh, stopped at this house we have in Connecticut, but there's no clothes there, so that's why I'm uh, not uh, disrespectful in showing up, but then I had to drive down from there to here. So 
the point of that is I'm extremely knowledgeable about Northeast geography. I could <laughs> tell any of you want to know what's going on in Utica about what's happening there. It's uh, very exciting up there. Um, recently visited. So uh, what I'm going to do, uh, I thought would be interesting to you, is tell you a little bit about organ donation. Some of this is in the book, some of this is not, but where are things at? And where things are at in terms of supply of organs is they are still very, very uh, short. Uh, shortage is the word when it comes to solid organs. So kidneys, livers, hearts, uh, lungs, uh, we primarily get them uh, from the deceased. And uh, how many of you have signed an organ donor card? So a lot. And in fact, many states have upwards of 60, 70, 80% of people signing donor cards. So you might think that we would have an adequate supply of organs. With all those people willing to be organ donors, what's the problem? Well, there are a number of problems. And actually, Jim and I have looked at them for many years, Dan a little bit less, but um, one problem is you can only be an organ donor if you die in a hospital on life support. So you are not going to be an organ donor if you fall in the tub and die there. Uh, no one is going to be able to preserve your organs. As soon as the blood circulation stops from your heart, your organs are not useful to anybody. So you have to die in circumstances where you're being maintained on life support, and then you die, so to speak, with the machinery running. Second, that is called brain death. And that does have some controversy still lead to this day about whether that is a uh, clear-cut uh, concept, whether people accept it, whether people can always diagnose it and actually declare it in a big hospital like where I am at NYU or where I was at Penn or many other big academic centers, there are plenty of neurologists who could do a pretty good brain death test. But if you die in Montana in a rural hospital, maybe not, maybe not. So you have to die in the machines. You have to die in a place that is capable of pronouncing you dead despite the fact that your heart is still beating but your brain has ceased to function. Tricky. And then you have to be otherwise healthy. And that sounds strange since you're dead, but um, you can't have infectious diseases. You can't be very old if your uh, kidneys are starting to fail uh, just through natural processes. You're probably not going to want to transplant those to somebody else. Um, if you have been in a traumatic car accident and suffered a lot of damage, obviously there's other problems. Even in trying to stop you from dying, we may administer drugs or interventions that make it harder to procure your organs. And hopefully you'd want us to do that. You wouldn't want us to say, oh, we're, you know, not really going to try hard to save you. Those are some interesting kidneys you've got there. So uh, people are aggressive and try to preserve uh, life, but um, it can make it uh, harder to find usable organs. In fact, the odds of you dying and becoming an organ donor, even with a donor card, are probably something close to about 1 in 500. So it's very tough under the current system to get organs for transplant from cadaver sources. Now, some organs you can turn to living sources, kidneys. And there are, at this point in time, more living kidney donors than cadaver kidney donors in the supply of transplanted organs in the U.S. 
you can look in the book for this too. There's a long discussion about the ethics of living donation. The fact that we have a lot of people who are living donors is great. However, the reality is we don't have all that many living donors overall. Or to put it another way, most of the living donors are people who are family members or friends or maybe someone you know from church or someone you know from the office or someone you knew from the old neighborhood. Very few people wake up one day and say, you know, today's the day I'm going to donate a kidney to a stranger. I mean, you see it and it's covered in the news and some of the people who've been living donors have done that. But not a lot. Not a lot. And there's a dilemma even when somebody wants to do that. It's the, again, discussed a little bit in the book. Um, somebody comes in and says, I'm going to donate my kidney to a stranger because Jesus called me to do that. So we're looking at the person and thinking, did Jesus call you to do that? Or are you crazy? I mean, are you hearing voices? What's going on? And I've met both <laughs> in my day met people who really wanted to altruistically help, and I met some people who were pretty mentally unbalanced, who see a story about somebody who needs a kidney and kind of show up at the... So you want to check somebody's authenticity, I might say, and I don't mean to be completely flip about it, are you religious? Do you go to church? Do you feel called to do noble things in other areas of your life? I mean, you look for a pattern before you start to say, okay, that's a generous heroic and wonderful thing, saintly even thing to do, versus uh, are you getting pressured or do you feel mental illness is compelling you to do it? At the other end of the spectrum, remember I said there are family members who donate. So how many of you have siblings? And how many of you like your sibling? Well, some people don't like their sibling, and their sibling may need a kidney, and they may come to them and they say, yeah, I'll give you a kidney. But they don't want to. In fact, despite all the rhetoric about informed consent around this, people decide whether they're going to give a kidney in about three seconds. I like my brother. I can't stand my brother. And they know. If they don't want to do it, there's a ton of pressure. I mean, do you want to come to Thanksgiving next year? Probably the road to that is not to refuse your brother's kidney, right? It's not a big bonder of family... Uh, Harmony. So, we sometimes have to lie. What we say is, on the medical end, Jim would love to give you his kidney, but unfortunately he's medically unable to do that. And there is lying that goes on to protect people. It's one of the places where I think it's justified lying, as a matter of fact, from the pressure they may feel. I once had a judge who stood up in front of his colleagues, another one of the people on the bench said, I need a kidney, I got a find a kidney donor, and this judge stood up and said, I'll give you a kidney. And then he went home, and his wife said, no, you won't. <laughs> and we had to kind of come up with it, a story for him to get him out of it, because he had publicly said he would, and it would have been ruinous, his reputation and function, if he backed out. So living donation, without going at it further, has lots of twists and turns. I'm not going to say we couldn't do better with kidneys, but it's hard. There's a lot of emotional and uh, subtle factors that are going on when somebody says, it's a stranger, I want to do it, or even as a family member, do they really want to do it, or are they just feeling pressured or coerced that they have no choice, they have to do it? Yeah? When I, I was uh, running the lab, um, it's a big blood bank, huge, huge 
Yeah. So you can think of it this end. At one end are the coerced, and at the other end are the crazy. And with living donation, you're always trying to figure out where are they on the spectrum. In the middle is where you like them to be, not crazy or coerced, but it can be difficult to trust everything. I mean, we've had people come in too and say, I want to give my kidney to Jim, and uh, I am his close relative, and I want to give my kidney to Jan. Oh, no, I mean Jim. We're really close. And you start to think, is somebody paying you? Who is this? You, you don't really know who this guy is, even though you say you're very close. So, I mean, it can be complicated. All of this is in the service of trying to explain to you why, even though Americans are pretty good about altruism, we're not actually bad on organ donation willingness, very difficult to rely on cadaver and existing living sources to meet the demand. So in the book, we propose or look at, take a look at some proposals that come up. Some people say, well, let's institute markets. And then we'll pay people, and then they'll make their organs available. So if you're going to pay people and make their organs available when they die, that's problematic. And the reason it's problematic, aside from issues about whether commercialization of the body is a good idea, in fact, two popes at least have condemned organ sales as inconsistent with the relationship one should have with their body, that is, it's not yours to sell, it's a gift, and you sort of maintain it, but it's not a piece of property. But put that, those objections aside for a second. The main problem when you tell somebody you're going to pay uh, for their organs when they die is that you're giving an incentive to people to say, well, let's not try very hard to keep them alive. And so if you ask people why don't they sign donor cards, a lot of them will say, I don't want to carry a card around that says I'm willing to give up my organs, because then they won't treat me aggressively. If you know that you're going to get $50,000 to your family when you're dead, and they know it, then you start to think, hmm, I wonder whether, I know they say they like me, but, you know, I'm worth a lot to them dead, and I'm not sure that that's a situation I want to face. Even if you're going to pay living people for their organs, you have this problem of exploitation. Most of the markets that are out there are in very poor countries that are illegal. They involve the poorest of the poor. Defenders of markets will say, well, why not let people choose to give a kidney? I will tell you my argument is, I don't think the poorest of the poor choose anything. They have no choice. If you say, here's your choice, you can starve to death or sell your kidney, to me that's not a choice. If you say, say in a rich country, you could do a job or sell your kidney or so on, that's a little bit more of a choice. But I'm here to tell you in all the survey work that we've ever done on this, you have to pay a lot of money to get somebody to sell their kidney. We're not that poor and people are not just going to say, oh, $5,000, I'll sell you my kidney. Even if you looked at the market in eggs in the U.S. where we have kidney sales in some states, and I have to tell you a little side note, you'll remember this more than anything I said today. You know the U.S. News and World Report that ranks colleges? You've seen those rankings? They're nonsense. The metrics are stupid. The real way to measure a college is prestige. It's to see what price people will pay for eggs. So the most prestigious college in America is Princeton. Nobody's buying eggs at uh, Cuyahoga Community College. And in between are NYU and Villanova. So um, egg price, you know, am I going to get genius? Am I going to get somebody with the right pedigree? That is part of the sale information, but they're paying $15,000, $20,000, and that's just an egg thing, which is relatively, I mean, 
it's, it's nothing, but it's a relatively minor low-risk thing to go through. Allowing somebody to pay for their kidney, I don't even see it generating much in the way of organs here. So if that's true, the other idea is presumed consent, or as I prefer to call it, default to donation. Some European countries have shifted what's sometimes called the nudge. Instead of saying you have to sign a card and you want to be an organ donor, you presume everybody in the room is an organ donor, and then if you don't want to be, you sign the card. So instead of opt-in, you have to opt-out. And I favor that. I think I wrote the first paper, at least in the uh, English-speaking liter English literature, 1984, about moving to a uh, presumed consent system with an opt-out. I don't think it hinders your choices or cuts back on your consent. You can say no, as easy as you can say yes. We live in a world where these defaults exist, right? If Villanova send you a paycheck, they direct deposit it unless you say you want it sent to you. So the default is it's going straight to the bank. You could have it sent to your house. If you get in line at the cafeteria, they can put the fruits and vegetables first in the hopes that you'll eat them, or they can put other things, snacks, first. And it's been shown that at least for young kids, if you put the healthier stuff first, they eat more of that than they do the junk stuff. You can still choose. No one told you anything. It's just you're being nudged or sort of pushed a little bit toward the healthier choice. Not coerced, just kind of by the presentation. So it turns out that Europe, in a few countries like Belgium and Austria, Spain, does better in getting organs. However, they don't do a ton better, because here's another reality. Even if you sign that donor card, right, or even if you register on the state of Pennsylvania computer registry at motor vehicles, which is a good place to register organ donors, because if your experience of motor vehicles is the same as mine, there's a very good chance you'll be there so long that you'll die there, and they can probably get your organs right there. But, um, no, we love motor vehicles. But the... Uh, the reality is that your family has no legal right to veto your decision, but doctors and nurses absolutely let them. Because it's emotional and psychological. Nobody's really looking for a headline that says, Art Kaplan's liver removed while widow screams in hall. Even if I had a donor card, right? It's sort of like, uh, plus... If I'm dead, presumably I've stopped talking, although it's arguable as to whether that will ever happen. But, um, but presumably my spouse or son or family or somebody is still talking. And so people listen to the people who are talking. If they say they don't want it, don't do it. So there's no legal right to override a donor card. But in practice, it is overridden. And by the way, it's overridden in the country with presumed consent. So even though the presumption is you want to donate and you didn't sign it, it says no. If your family says no... They don't do it there either. I've, we've had a couple of students over the years look in France and look in Belgium and families veto. States in the U.S. have tried occasionally to pass laws to stop family rights to veto. It doesn't matter what they pass. Families are going to get listened to. Dying and death are partly family. Uh, family issues. They just are. That's how it is. So let me end these remarks with a more radical suggestion. Remember I said... The percentage of people who can be donors is tiny. I don't think you're going to generate up a lot more organs or something like hearts or livers by a market that's just about kidneys and probably not going to really boost the supply. Presumed consent, it would help, but it doesn't help a huge amount. What you got to do is create more donors. And one way to do that is to think about those people who aren't dying in the hospital. 
So do we want to try a system where we send out with the EMT people and the ambulance people and the fire department equipment that would let the people be preserved? Take them to the hospital and then let them make a decision about whether they want to be organ donors there. The vast majority of people don't die in hospitals. Overwhelming. You increase, if you want to get more organs, ultimately you're going to have to increase the pool, not just the policies about payment or presumed consent. Those are the sort of niggling on the sides. So could we be a country that said, Art died uh, in his uh, house, and we sent out the EMTs, and they got there in two minutes, and they put in a tube into him that kept his uh, blood flowing, and they had a little heart pump device with him, and they gave him CPR, and they're going to take him back to the hospital, which they obviously wouldn't do because they pronounced him dead. But now they're going to do it, and they're going to say to the family, can we have your permission to do it? Take him there, and then you can decide whether he wants to be, you want him to be an organ donor, or you, we can find his organ donor status, which is hard to do from the house. It's easy to do from the hospital. So something to think about, and I've been writing about this, and it isn't in the book because it's newer, is whether we want to shift who can be eligible to donate by changing how we manage dying. It's obviously a tough issue because, you know, these are often unexpected sudden deaths, right? Guys in the backyard barbecuing a steak, has an aneurysm in his brain, falls over dead. The ambulance guys show up and say he's dead, and you start this discussion of preserving something. And the person, the survivor, is like, what's going on here? You know, he was just here, and, that, and you're asking me about So it's difficult. If you break the thing into two parts, permission to preserve, and then push the decision about permission to donate later, that was my idea about how to make it more respectful of the psychology of what's happened. In any event, I hope that gives you a sense of where we are on the organ donor end of the world, uh, some of the uh, complexities that uh, make it a little hard to find uh, uh, solutions. And uh, I'm sure we'll have some time to talk about uh, these ideas uh, when we get done with our formal talks. So thanks. The, the idea for this program is to, um, for Art to provide an overview, which he does in the book. The, uh, there's an introduction in the book where he provides an overview, as he did now. And then each chapter deals with some of these more specific things. I wrote the introduction as for uh, the first two chapters. Uh, Dan uh, wrote the uh, second second, fourth, third, and fourth, and Art wrote the fifth, which hopefully we'll talk about in discussion about gaming the system and uh, some of the ways in which people try to use the media to get uh, organs donated. But the first chapter uh, is actually the longest chapter, and it deals with the issue of um, issues surrounding the determination of death related to organ procurement. So in addition to some of the things Art said, there's some real issues focused on uh, determination of death that uh, impact uh, on the number of donors available. So I want to talk first of all about neurological death or sometimes called brain death. The problem with brain death is that people think the brain has died. Neurological death means the person has died because the total brain has died. So neurological death I think is a better, better word to use. And then the second part will be on circulatory death and I'll just say a few things about that. Uh, but um, neurological death, uh, there's really right now three positions on neurological death. Uh, that um, people are arguing about, and all of them have some problems. The first position uh, is that neurological death is in fact the death of the person, and organs can be removed. And uh, this is actually the law in every state but New Jersey, and we 
New Jersey says it can be, unless the family says the person isn't dead, then they're not, which is terrible public <laughs> policy. <laughs> but uh, that's the way that's the way the statute reads in New Jersey. I have excoriated the legislature legislators in New Jersey about how uh, you know crazy that is. You know, saying uh, you're pregnant unless you say you're not, and you're not. And, you know, you're dead or you're not. Uh, so um, it's not a matter of choice; it's a matter of, of fact. Dying is different. People go through stages of dying, but the actual moment of death is um, is a point in, in time. Uh, the law, as I said, supports uh, neurological death. Uh, so does the Catholic Church. People are surprised at that, but actually in the book we have a, a fairly long statement from uh, Pope John Paul II uh, uh, supporting organ donation generally and supporting um, neurological death specifically. Uh, the reason for that is that um, the Pope emphasizes that uh, it's a, this is a determination of death, not a definition of death. We don't know exactly when the point of death occurs. We know it is a point, we don't know when it occurs. But to say that someone who has lost total neurological function is dead is to acknowledge uh, that uh, the, um, organ as the organism as a whole is not functional. Organ systems can be alive. In fact, it has been shown that some organ systems keep themselves going. But the person, as a person, as a total entity, as a biological being, uh, has ceased to exist. So, um, as I say, and many other uh, writers support that position, but especially people who are in the law and uh, uh, religious writers generally uh, support that position. Position two is, is that uh, it is not the death of the person and organs can't be removed. The one who's developed this um, most is uh, Alan Schumann, who's a neurologist from California. And he's shown through a lot of studies that in fact many systems in the, uh, in someone who's neurologically dead uh, continue to function. So uh, regulation of body temperature, um, certain excretion functions, uh, perspiration and so forth. There, there are things that do continue to function. and. Um, he basically argues that since uh, this, these things can go on, even though the total brain has died, uh, that, that, that these people aren't really dead, that uh, their brain has died, but uh, they're, uh, they are still alive. This came to the fore recently with the Jahi McMath case. Some of you may have heard of this case. A uh, little girl in California went under tonsillectomy, routine tonsillectomy, and things went south, and she wound up uh, neurologically dead. And uh, her family refused to believe that she was dead. But in California, there's no wiggle room, and they declared that she was dead. And the family, um, the, the hospital had to discharge her, but the family found some organization uh, that provided money and transport, uh, and they brought her body back to New Jersey. As far as I know, the body continues to be on a respirator and is still functioning as a body. Uh, but she's literally dead. New Jersey, of course, says if you don't believe that uh, brain death is real death, then you're not dead. So they, they brought her to New Jersey, and that's, I think, a lot of legislators in New Jersey are having second thoughts about their wiggle room. But that's, that's the case that kind of brings that to the fore. Now, somebody like Schumann would say, that's right, she's not dead. She's, she's dying, but she's not dead. And uh, we, you know, uh, should respect that and not, if the do dead donor rule means anything, it means we don't take her organs. The dead donor rule says you have to be dead in order for your organs to be harvested uh, in, uh, for, for donation. But the third position is, uh, this is neurological death is not the death of the person, but organs can be removed anyway. 
Uh, and uh, so somebody like uh, Truog and Miller, Truog is an editor of the New England Journal of Medicine and fairly respectable, respectful, respectable doctor, uh, has been writing for years in one of his articles with Miller's in our book uh, that uh, it's time to get rid of the dead donor rule. That people don't have to be dead to uh, donate their organ. They just have to be dying. And, uh, you know, they're, they're people who are neurologically dead, uh, certainly dying. If you take the respirator off, they're gonna, their heart, heart and lungs are going to stop. Uh, it's part of the definition of, of uh, neurological death. But he feels that, you know, uh, we're wasting a lot of organs by waiting for people to die who have neurological uh, death, who don't have neurological death, but who are clearly on their way out. And uh, that he feels that uh, when, when neurological death is declared, it doesn't mean the person has died, but we can take the organs anyway. And there are a number of people who, who believe that, who believe that the dead donor rule has served its purpose and uh, should be abandoned. If you think about, you know, what Art was mentioning earlier about the reluctance that people have about donating because they think not everything's going to be done, this position, I think, runs against uh, reality. People aren't going to donate organs. They're not even going to sign a donor card if they think their organs are going to be taken before they're really dead. I, I think the dead donor rule is really important uh, psychologically. I have an article in the book where I argue against, you know, abandoning the dead donor rule because, uh, first of all, the, uh, the argument for it is that you're respecting the autonomy of the person. It just would be where people would say, if I'm dying, if I'm declared neurologically dead, you can take my organ. Um, and people would say, well, that's respecting their autonomy, even though they're not dead, we can take their organs. Of course, the next step is to say, well, people who are in persistent vegetative states are not dead, but they're dying, so we can take their organs too. That, that hasn't been advocated much. It has been advocated, but not, not too much. But the uh, problem, and the other problem is, is the empirical problem that people just wouldn't probably sign up organ donor cards if they thought they were going to have their organs removed before they were really dead. So brain death does make sense. Neurological death does make sense because it, the integration of the body uh, as a biological organism just isn't functioning anymore. Um, the other uh, issue that we raised in this first chapter is circulatory death. Um, where uh, sometimes called non-heartbeating organ donation. And this is where um, someone who uh, is not um, neurologically dead, someone who's, let's say, on a respirator, but who's functional, alive, maybe conscious, uh, usually unconscious in the time he makes the decision, but they would make the decision to remove the respirator, allow the person to die uh, using uh, cardiovascular or uh, uh, neuro cardiopulmonary criteria and uh, allow the person um, to die, but they would wait at the bedside after they discontinued the respirator until the heart stopped and uh, the circulation stopped and then declare the person dead. Some of the protocols are as short as two minutes. They may have even gotten shorter, but uh, I know that's the last one I know. Some of them are usually, usually there are five minutes, but wait two minutes or five minutes. They have to move quickly because the organs, as Art mentioned, would start deteriorating if they didn't. Uh, but uh, they, um, they declare the person dead and then remove the organs. Now, you know, the problem with this is all the laws say the person has to be irrevocably dead. And the issue is what does irrevocably mean? Uh, if they're using a criteria of circulation, that actually works because in terms of this body, circulation has stopped once, once and forever. But if they're using the criteria of the heart stopping, problem because they're going to remove the heart, put it in somebody else, and get it started again. 
because it's not the, the art. The heart hasn't uh, stopped irrevocably. So that has become a, a major issue, and maybe we need to redefine what we mean by irrevocable. It's certainly morally irrevocable in the sense that a family or a person has said, I don't want to be resuscitated. So in the sense it's morally irrevocable, but it's not physiologically irrevocable. Uh, so that's um, one of the issues with circulatory death. And uh, the problem of w how long to wait before you declare death, before harvesting the organs is the other issue. So that's the first chapter. We have a lot of articles pro and con on several of these uh, things. And uh, you know, I think it's a very interesting article to see what people are thinking, both uh, legally, medically, religiously, about th this issue of brain death and organ donation. Uh, the second part of the book is um, on anencephalics. Uh, can anencephalic, anencephalics are babies who are born without a functioning brain. They have a brain stem and they can breathe spontaneously, but they can't, they have no brain. They can't, uh, there's nothing else. Uh, they're brain absent. Sometimes they're described as brain absent. So the issue came up in the 80s, a lot of, lot of discussion around this. Uh, can anencephalics, uh, the parents of anencephalics, trying to make good out of tragedy, can they donate organs, the donation of organs from anencephalic babies? Because we need organs, uh, s small organs for other children who, who are, um, have problems. The problem with, uh, and, and that was a big debate in the 80s. It's sort of calmed down now, and we were debating even whether to put this chapter in. But I, was, I, I lobbied for this chapter because I said, if in fact uh, those who feel that um, we have to get rid of the dead donor rule uh, prevail, and that's the way the society moves, then this will become a big issue again. If you don't have to be brain dead, then these, these uh, anencephalics are clearly not brain dead because they have a functioning brain stem and they can breathe spontaneously. But if we, if we argue that you don't really have to be brain dead, these babies are clearly dying. The longest one, I think, was three years or something. And that was only because the parents kept bringing the child back to the hospital and uh, mTOR, the federal program, uh, says you have to keep people alive when they appear at the emergency room. mTOR was probably not meant for this um, type of situation, but they used it. And uh, so the child did live for three years with, with a lot of aggressive treatment. Usually these children live for days or uh, hours after they're born. Uh, problem is once they die, um, the organs deteriorate quickly because they're so young. They can't use the organs after uh, cardiopulmonary death takes place. So, um, so the second chapter looks at uh, some of these articles were written in the 80s. Uh, excuse me. Uh, and uh, the, um, we, sh we look at both sides, the pros and the cons. Uh, Alex Capron writes an article uh, against it. He was one of the ones that developed the brain death statutes in the United States, and he's very opposed uh, to this. Richard Zaner uh, writes an article countering um, uh, Cap uh, Capron's article point by point, sort of arguing. So it's an interesting uh, few articles. Art Kaplan has an also an uh, uh, article in there, sort of supporting the issue of anencephalics, but saying, you know, society is really a long way from that. We really have to be careful uh, about this and, you know, um, really do it with respect for families and emphasize that we're trying to respect families' wishes and not just doing it on utilitarian grounds. So uh, that, uh, you know, is one issue. And then we have an article in there on, from uh, Canada uh, from a, uh, a group of obstetricians uh, that is very totally opposed to um, using so that's a fairly short chapter, but interesting because it 
relates to the first chapter in terms of if you're going to say the dead donor rule is not applicable anymore, then uh, you know it opens a lot of possibilities. So I'll stop there, and uh, Dan will talk about the uh, next two um, chapters, which deal with some of the things that Art mentioned of uh, um, opt-in um, issues and um, selling, uh, ordering, and so forth. So Dan, you're on. Thank you. Uh, before I begin, I would just like to take this opportunity to thank not only the philosophy department and Valley, but also the two gentlemen I am sharing the front of the room with for giving me the opportunity to do this. Um, it was very uh, interesting to work alongside both of them, and I am very proud that as I graduated college, I was a published editor in uh, bioethics. We'll see what that does for med school, but that's a different issue entirely. Um, Hadn't done much for us either. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, two parts of the book that I some would argue with the word wrote, the introductions for, uh, touch on two of the topics that Dr. Kaplan had talked about before. The first looks at the issue of uh, organ markets, which is the idea of not allowing direct sales, as in, I want to sell my kidney to Father Jim, how much is he going to give me for it? No, it's, it's establishing a governmental market where essentially you are paid by the government for the use of your organ after you've passed away, essentially to offset funeral costs. Um, or one would hope that's what the money would be used for. But there are a number of uh, inherent problems with this. The first is, are people willing to do it? And as Dr. Kaplan had said, it takes a lot of money to get someone to living part with a, uh, a kidney. In the Philippines, they do have an organ market, but it's more along the lines of uh, medical tourism or transplant tourism which he'll get to in a minute, but it's essentially the practice of leaving this country to go find an organ somewhere else. And under this organ market, which is run both through the government and through uh, private firms, they pay some of the least well-off members of the, the society there about $2,000 US for their kidney, and then turn around and sell it to the people coming in for about $25,000, including the surgery. Now, that raises two huge issues. The first is, how does one put a value on a, on a human body part, and that's not something that even bears going into because it, it's just so difficult, not only for the labor-intensive methods through which it has to be procured, but also, you know, how do you compensate for the complications? How do you compensate for the changes to someone's quality of life after they've had a kidney or a part of their liver or anything else removed? The other issue is exploitation. In the example that I gave, the least well-off members of society, the poor, the ill, etc., are being paid $2,000, which at the exchange rate is still very little money, even with the cost of living there. And so you come to the question of, are people doing it because they want to give an organ to someone to, to help improve, improve someone else's quality of life, or are they doing it because, as Dr. Kaplan said, they don't have a choice, they need the money? It's a tough question to tackle. And in one of the articles uh, in this chapter, uh, the authors look at the idea of balancing the intrinsic and extrinsic uh, factors in organ donation. Extrinsic being things like uh, compensation, whereas intrinsic are things like the uh, altruism. And they found that uh, it's more of an issue for them that it's tough to find that balance. 
at what point are you paying too much? At what point are you not paying enough? The, the valuation is really the, the whole heart of it. Anyone interested in looking more at this can look at uh, Mark Cherry's book, uh, Kidney for Sale by Owner. The other, uh, oh, what was it? Oh, the other country that has a kidney market currently and actually has a very successful one is Iran. They have had one since uh, 1988, they legalized it, and by 1999 they had no kidney waiting list, no, no waiting recipient list. So it shows that a market system can work, but the question is how do we make it work here? And that's something that several of the articles go into, but the, the factors are different um, in such a culturally diverse country like ours as, some, as opposed to something that's a little more monochromatic like Iran. The second uh, chapter that I wrote the introduction for, it looks at strategies for increasing the number of available organs. This was uh, the ideas of opt out as opposed to opt in. The issue with an opt out program comes down to something similar to what our current opt in or uh, encouraged volunteerism system looks at now, and that is is there a stigma attached to those who decide not to, do, or those who decide not to be donors? Just as some may say, well, why would you not want to be a donor under our current system? And so, looking at the the numbers from the countries that have done it in Europe, and uh, New Hampshire is at least entertaining a bill in their state legislature to switch to a presumed consent system. It it doesn't help much. It helps, but it doesn't help much because of the stipulations on how how you have to die to be able to donate your organs. Uh, one of the most interesting pieces, at least through my eyes, in this book is, uh, it was called uh, 60 People, 30 Kidneys. And it talks about the idea of kidney chains. As Dr. Kaplan was saying before, sometimes it's hard to find someone who is a match because you have to meet certain criteria to be able to give your kidney to someone else so that the body doesn't reject it. Under, what happened in this case was that, it, for a short example, I needed a kidney. Dr. McCartney was willing to give me a kidney, but it didn't match. Art needed a kidney, and Catherine had one that also didn't match, but as it worked out, they matched and we matched, and essentially they went down the line, and the largest one they did, I think, was mostly centered in New York, was 60 people transferring 30 kidneys, and setting up the, the work that went into setting up something like that is absolutely astonishing to me. I think it's a, a real uh, modern miracle of medicine, um, if you will. The other, uh, one of the other strategies besides those is uh, uncontrolled, or donation after uncontrolled cardiac death, which is what Dr. Kaplan was getting into before with sending out EMTs with ECMO machines to biologically keep the body alive and preserve the organs. Uh, I actually had the pleasure of working at Mount Sinai with a Dr. Kevin Manjal in the uh, emergency department who, along with several of his fellows who work in uh, EMS medicine and several members of the NYU faculty, wrote a protocol for New York that was highly successful, but the problems that they ran into were more, more on the ethical than on the logistical side or on the medical side. What their protocol called for was that in order for someone to be eligible to be included in this program, in this study, they not only needed to have an executed donor card, as in they signed the back of their driver's license on the body at the time the paramedics presented, 
but it, uh, the protocol also called for family consent. And that's where they saw a lot of the, these fall apart because the family was not willing to consent even to have the person hooked up to the ECMO machine, uh, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, and brought back to the hospital. And so it, the number one thing that we have to think about in terms of increasing our available organs is more a mentality shift, at least in this country, of looking at the, the overall benefit of donation as opposed to any side effects. And yes, I do agree that as several states have tried to, removing the family veto power would help tremendously, but that's more a perception thing than anything else. Um, thank you very much. We have a discussion about ways in which people try to get organs, uh, as opposed to what we've been talking about here. How do we give them organs or the uh, supply side? And we pay attention to the demand side in a number of articles, but I'll just be quick and tell you about one interesting case that took place around here. There was a little girl named Sarah Murnahan. Some of you may remember she needed a uh, lung transplant. And it turned out that the way the system was organized, older uh, people got older lungs. Very young people got uh, lungs from people, say, under five. On the other hand, there are almost no lung donors from people under five. Uh, they don't shoot each other, they're in car seats, there are many things that we've done to diminish the number of deaths in very young children. That's good, but it means the pressure when it's looking for something like a lung is pretty intense. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say there aren't any, but there are very, very few. And then there was this sort of ambiguous zone where if you were five up to like uh, 18, uh, you tended to uh, get lower priority for the adults. So most of the people looking for lungs are adults. If you want to give an adult organ to a little kid, you have to use a piece of it because it won't fit. And for those of you who don't know, lungs are pretty fragile. They're like feathers. And if you try to cut them, it's not like a piece of liver, which you can do and people do a lot and the liver grows back. If you take a lobe of lung, it's hard to take it and it doesn't grow back. So there are reasons why... Uh, uh, it's tough to get an organ for a little kid. Anyway, this little girl had cystic fibrosis, and she uh, was on the list, and she wasn't getting a lung. And finally, her mom in particular said, you know what? It's not fair that she's not eligible to get lungs from an adult donor. And the system sort of said, well, um, that's kind of the rules we made, and that's how it works. And she said, well, that's kind of not in favoring my, do my daughter. And I'm going to try and game the system a little bit in a few ways. One, I'm going to start a Twitter campaign and say, why aren't you helping my little girl? I'll bring pressure on you, the system, to do something. And two, I'm going to sue uh, the national system that sets these rules for uh, distributing, in this case, lungs, and say, your rules are unfair. And uh, as a small side note, I, it was very funny. I'm kind of a defender of the rules as they stood because I think you get more effective use of the small number of lung donors if you don't cut them up and try and fit them into little kids. So more lives are saved with adult to adult and even older kid donors going toward the adults. However, I got a call from the mom's law firms asking if I would help her. So uh, I said no. Um, <laughs> but... Um, 
I certainly understood her right and you know what mom doesn't want to try and fight for their kid to get uh, shot at a transplant. I had nothing critical to say about what she was trying to do. In any event, um, I didn't think they had a chance because the rules are kind of the rules and they've been the rules. However, the system was brought to court. And you'll love this. The judge who uh, got the case was a guy named uh, Bailson, a federal judge in Philly. Uh, his wife did her bioethics degree with me. <laughs> She's an OB in Philly. So Judge Bailson, I've never revealed this before, called me up and said, what do you think? <laughs> and I told him all that I about the rules and what I thought and that, and said, thanks, you know, goodbye. Anyway, he ruled in the favor of the mother. He didn't buy any of my arguments. Uh, but the reason he ruled in the favor of the mother was the system was not very good at explaining the data or evidence upon which the rules rested, why, I don't know. But that made the rules seem capricious. And he said, well, if you don't have some evidence for this, you can't just make up rules that are discriminatory against young people, so I'm going to let Sarah get along. And as far as I know, the transplant has been fairly effective. There are two problems. One is cystic fibrosis affects more than your lungs. It affects lots of body systems. So it's not like she's healthy. She's still here, but I think she has some issues. But she is still here. And it's been, what, it must be two years, three years. Um, and then, uh, that's right, I forgot. So she actually got a second one because the first one didn't work. And... Um, but nonetheless, she's surviving. I, I haven't seen a photo or a discussion of how she's doing now. It makes me a little nervous that maybe she's not doing all that great, but I know she's still alive. Uh, the mom has no regrets about prolonging the life of her child. The system decided to go back and reevaluate the rules, but I think what they needed to do was go back and reevaluate the evidence. I'm not sure the rules were ever wrong. They just sort of seemed arbitrary. So lessons of all this. People have many ways to game the system to try and get organs. Sometimes they do initiate media campaigns and just try to shame somebody into giving them something. But that obviously favors the better off or the people who know what to do or can hire a PR person or who are willing to give up their privacy. I've met families that won't do it because they don't want to be in the media. They just, they're not comfortable with it. So they could do it, but they don't do it. Um, a second way to game the system is if your doctor is really a good advocate, you can think about this, Dan, um, do you sort of lie a little bit and say the person's sicker? Because the sicker you are, you tend to get more priority to get that transplant. So you see people upcoding. So, well, let's put it this way. We've gotten reports, as I've looked at the transplant system over the years, that Art Kaplan's really sick and he's in the hospital and he uh, is on a left ventricular assist device like Dick Cheney, and he really needs a heart. And then somebody says, that's kind of interesting, because I just saw Art playing tennis uh, down at, uh, you know, uh, fourth and chestnut, and what the heck is going on here? People will lie sometimes to get their patient priority. And who wouldn't want a doctor, if you needed a transplant, who wouldn't kind of stretch the truth a bit in your behalf? And maybe one could even say, oh, that's good ethics. That's what an advocate should do. You don't worry about the impact on the community or the total system. Your job is to fight for resources for your patient, and you do what it takes. Let's put it that way. There are other ways to game the system. One other way is if you need a transplant, it's good to be rich. 
because many insurance programs wouldn't pay for something like a lung transplant considering it experimental. So you can game the system, you can raise money. There are situations where people, you know, going to have a lot of bake sales, we're going to do a lot of car washes, or I'm going to try and put myself up on the web. If you Google uh, people in need of kidney transplants, you can see lists of people up there hoping, begging for money, not just a kidney, but funding. And all of them remarkably are very nice people who woke up one day and they have no idea how their kidney failed, and they own a pet, and they have nice children, and everybody loves them. There's nobody up there who says, yeah, my kidney failed because I weigh 350 pounds and I never controlled my diabetes and my wife left me years ago and I kicked the dog every day and I haven't talked to my kids in seven years. Nobody's up there like that. So everybody sort of shapes their presentation to game the system to make you want to contribute. And there's nobody vetting the internet, right? I mean, nobody goes out and says, Jim, uh, really, I don't know. <laughs> Your profile is a little stretched there. Um, so nobody's checking. Um, so you can see all kinds of ways that people start to game the system in order to get access. Now, the system has been in place a long time. I'm so ancient that I helped write the original rules for this system. I still think it works pretty well, but even doctors can be susceptible. I'll leave you with the last story. There was a scandal a couple years ago where all of a sudden a group of rich Japanese gangsters were getting liver transplants at UCLA. Well, what are they doing there? Or I'll give you a parallel, not that it's a rich gangster. Where did Steve Jobs get his transplant? Anybody remember? Kentucky, good, close, not right quite. Tennessee. So, like Arnie and me, we don't know where Tennessee is, and neither does uh, Steve Jobs. I mean, what's he doing there? He doesn't go to Tennessee. Well, he's at Tennessee, Memphis, because they have relatively fewer people on their lists than people in Northern California, or for that matter, Philadelphia. So there are places that have long lists because there are more people, and there are places that have shorter lists, and since organs are somewhat regional in distribution, you could afford to fly to Memphis, get worked up there, get on the list, and if an organ became available, he flew back. The Japanese gangsters were doing much the same thing. They came, they stayed in the country a year, they got on the list, and all of a sudden, here they are coming up to the top. Those are called multiple listings, trying to get in more than one place. You have to be rich to do it. You can gain the system that way. And by law, 10% of any transplant list can go to foreigners. I'm waiting for Donald Trump to discover this and introduce it into the next debate, but it is true that we have this rule that lets 10% of organs, you know, time to build a wall. But uh, there it is. And um, is that a good policy? Transplant centers like it because you get rich people. Um, and the I mean, the 10% is not poor Bolivian children, let me tell you. It's the Sheik of Brunei and his, you know, the Japanese Yakutsi and all these other people showing up with cash. And so that's a loophole. Transplant centers like it. They can get more transplant fellows. I'm not saying they put the money in their pockets, but they build more towers and, you know, things grow and it's good for their programs. So that's some of the stuff in the last part of the book about ways in which the system ethically gets challenged sometimes by people who have the means or the smarts to know how to manipulate. Oh, very much. That was fascinating. Um, we have uh, time, and our speakers have agreed to discuss for about half an hour, 40 minutes, half an hour. So I'll, I'll field the questions, but I won't answer them. Uh, question concerning live delivery. 
there was appreciable mortality associated with live liver donation to the point that some centers have stopped doing it all together. Can you comment on the current state and also the ethical implications of that? So living kidney donation has a very good safety record in terms of deaths, probably one in 10,000. It's, it's a very rare event that someone dies. Liver donation gets up to like maybe 12 per uh, uh, 10,000. So it's more significant. But what really goes on is when you take a piece of the liver, it also leads to a higher chance of disability, longer stays in the hospital, you can pick up infections, there could be bleeds. It's a more, it's a tougher, tougher procedure than a kidney. I don't mean to minimize the kidney thing, it's not trivial. And this lets me sneer a little bit at something. If kidney donation, living kidney donation, was so easy, then there's an awful lot of kidney transplant surgeons with two kidneys. I haven't seen them donate their you know, kidneys. There's plenty of bioethicists with two kidneys. So there's two nephrologists that could have donated their kidneys. Right, two, two. I'm not one of them. And two out of what? I don't know. What are there? Thirty thousand nephrologists. I don't know how many there are. Whatever there are, but it's a tiny percentage have done it. I know one myself who donated to a patient, but you know, for all the talk that's no big deal, the liver is a big deal. And so the short the answer to your question is it really is cut back. It's not disappeared. You do see it go on. There's still live liver, but what tends to be is parents to kids. Not strangers anymore. And uh, the other thing is informed consent. You know, you have to tell people that there's a higher risk if they're willing to donate a, a little of the liver to, to give them statistics that they're higher risk for problems. So if they're willing to take the risks, I think that's, that's fine. Well, uh, Reverend, the, the point that Art briefly alluded to, that the decision to donate is usually made in a matter of seconds, if not minutes, so that it's very rare that they deliberate on it, uh, where they can take in all the risk and, and assimilate that. I, I don't think they should be allowed to just, you know, make that decision without getting information and understanding for consent rules for everything else in medicine this was supposed to. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, this is no different, especially when there's more risk. I mean, it, it's interesting for all of you on these live donor programs. One of the things I've advocated for to sort of bridge this informed consent and coercion problem is that somebody be appointed as an advocate to work with the potential donor who's not paid by the transplant program so that they don't have a motivation. I mean, transplant surgeons are trying to get organs for their patients. It's pretty understandable what their interest is, and they're not fighting so hard with donors. But if you have a person, social worker, nurse, who can say, I'm going to explain this to you, and I don't care whether you donate. I really don't. I'm just telling you. That helps the consent thing. It's costly, but it gets you better consents. until just now hearing you speak that there's a conflict between enrolling people to be donors and the movement toward palliative care and helping people die a nice happy death not in the intensive care unit. What do we do about that? Uh, I'll just say one word and then one of these two can uh, answer uh, one answerable question. I uh, <laughs> want you to realize too that you now have physician assisted dying in Oregon, Washington, Vermont. Canada will soon have it nationwide. 
California will soon implement something like this. In a, New Mexico have court decisions. That, so if I said, well, gee, I'm going to die anyway, so how about I die in a way that lets you take my organs? Now, most people are dying are too sick to be organ donors, but in theory, you can start to see some of it. So it isn't just palliative care and a happy death. It's partly a, well, if I'm going to pick the time of my dying and I'm terminally ill, could I donate anything or, you know, I want to go in a way that helps others, that gets us pretty close to the dead donor rule problem that Jim talked about in terms of, you know, we're talking to you about donation, you're not dead. I mean, if, if the state empowers physicians to pres prescribe medications, what would prevent somebody from eventually saying, well, I don't want to make the person uh, take a med, I'll just remove their heart. Mm -hmm. There'll be other sedation, but... Well, Can we put this in the book? I call that the Mayan protocol. No. That's a great question. And, you know, there's no real answer. Yeah, the problem, as they were both saying, is really that it comes down to you you can have a good death, for want of a better way of putting it. Essentially, any, any uh, method of death that is easy on the patient, particularly in these physician-assisted suicide cases, or even in palliative care, anything that is uh, humane to the patient is bad for the organs, because you're pumping them full of drugs, you're keeping them alive probably a little longer than they should be. The flip side, though, is that if you want to save the organs, you are going to put someone either through a long and painful death, or through a quick and brutal death. Uh, hanging and gunshot wounds will effectively save your organs, but they you know, are not particularly pretty nice. But yeah, there's that too. We're not French, so. <laughs> By the way, one other issue. There are people dying in the hospital who we wouldn't put on life support. They're just dying, and we know that. But we could move them to life support solely to facilitate organ recovery. Jim, you commented on this a little bit with the uncontrolled donation, but you can control it. In other words, you can say, Okay, we're not going to do anything. We won't touch you until you're dead. But instead of letting go home or go to hospice or have a happy demise with friends and family, we're going to high tech your death if you want to be an organ donor. So they are intention to some degree, absolutely. There's a, actually a question over here. It's been hanging, and we'll come right back to the stem cell research and nanotechnology are all accelerating at an exponential rate. What happens when you can essentially grow designer organs for people and distribution and supply are no longer an issue? What are the ethics of how you grow these? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm sure that Dan answered this because Jim and I have no future, but <laughs> the, uh, the cool tech stuff give you one you didn't mention. So people have dreamed for a long time about using animals like pigs, but there's been immunological problems. The body doesn't really like human organs from other humans. It attacks them, but it really doesn't like animal organs unless they come in through your stomach for some reason when you can digest them. So there's something to learn there. And people, by the way, are interested, for those of you who are interested in science, in the placenta, because why doesn't the baby get rejected is another 
interesting thing that something's going on that's filtering there that's really remarkable. But put that on the side. You all know about CRISPR, the new gene editing technique? Well, at NYU, but there are a lot of people besides there, but I've been watching it at NYU. They are they do have a project to genetically engineer the pigs to make their organs somewhat less immunogenic, so that would uh, cause so much resistance. I think that technology is not so far off. Artificial organs have had their dreams, but they have been slow. 3D printing, I think, is interesting. You know, some of that may turn out to be useful, at least to make blood vessels or uh, flat tissues like skin. That, that there may be things, you know, building a heart in a 3D printer that pumps is you know, you go invent it. I don't know. That's pretty yeah. hard. But the uh, the uh, I think you're going to see some animal engineering pretty soon that might actually start to enter the organ supply for people, you know, who are willing to accept an organ from a. I mean, I'll tell you, most people who are in heart failure and liver failure, their objections to taking an animal part diminish pretty fast. Let me just respond to that because you talked about stem cells, uh, which they can now make from somatic cells, uh, so, and, uh, so that covers one of the ethical problems with stem cells. But it, the, the good thing about using a stem cell would be they could get it from your own body and there wouldn't be any rejection. And they are developing organs from other animals. I think uh, they did a mouse with a mm -hmm. uh, fist or something. Yep. Like that. And uh, so they, you know, that is ears. that technology, ears, right? Mm -hmm. That technology is developing and probably would be helpful because A, there's a shortage of organs, and B, these would be histocompatible with the, uh, with the person themselves. Uh, this is not on uh, transplantation as such, but I just had a law student that wrote a uh, research paper on something that I didn't know about, but apparently they're de developing stem cells that can, um, they can manipulate them to form uh, gametes, uh, both male and female gametes, and from the same person. And, uh, that's, and they've done it with animals, I haven't done it with humans yet, but that's going to be the way of the future where, for, especially for same-sex couples, they could have their own children. And um, so, you know, there's a lot we could prognosticate about the future. And, and, and one other thing, uh, just I'm going to ask you all a question. So a lot of you said you'd signed an organ donor card. How many of you thought when you did that or are thinking now that they might use my face? Well, we just did a phase transplant. You probably saw the news at NYU. Yeah. And Harvard has done three. And uh, so one of the big transplant guys is now my new friend, Eduardo Rodriguez, who was at Hopkins and then came, got recruited to, to do this at NYU. Uh, the point that I'm going to go to is when we think transplant, we think about kidneys and hearts. But, you know, there's this whole wave of faces. There are people interested in transplanting. Um, ovaries, there are people interested in transplanting a uterus. Uterus is potentially growable. It's a bag, you know, it doesn't, it's not super complicated. Transplanting a bladder, it's not like transplanting a complex organ like a liver, which has a lot of different cells. So there may be opportunities to grow certain types of uh, uh, organ transplants that we didn't talk to you about, but that's sort of the next wave of transplants. It's the limbs and the uh, ovaries and the fallopian tube and the uterus and face and so on and so on. That'll be Dan's next book, Art and I won't. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Dan, did you want to comment on that too? Oh, no, I'm just going to tag on that the the two problems that I see with it are first time. You know, it, it's going to take time not only to develop these technologies, but also to 
grow someone a liver or a kidney or to 3D print something takes time that the patients may not necessarily have. So in one way, that's a, a problem that will have to be gotten around. But the other main issue that I'm seeing is a, the ethical principle of justice. These are going to be expensive technologies when they come out. So it will be, it will put those less well off or those who are in Steve Jobs and Bill Gates at a disadvantage in terms of having access to these technologies, which is something that we've been trying to revive Revised in this country how people get access to healthcare, but that you know is still a long way away to equitable distribution. Yeah, first I just want to thank you for an excellent presentation, especially by my former student. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was just uh, struck by that figure from the figures from Iran because at that time at our renal uh, kidney transplant doc that he's had been working in the Emirates, uh, he just had no success at all because of. Muslim resistance to autopsies. So how come, they, is there something going on that's different now with the version of Islam? In yes, the, is the Iranian um, Shiite Muslim, uh, or some of the uh, Muslim scholars said that a transplantation is, is okay, and liver transplantation is fine, or kidney transplantation is fine. So the government checked with the religious authorities, because it's, a, as somebody said, monochromatic, yeah, yeah. before they did this. What Iran emphasizes, they said, yes, Poor people get uh, paid for this, but poor people get the kidneys too. We're all poor in this country. And to have a government sponsored sale that where we set the prices and set what people pay to get us a kidney, it's not, we don't pay people 2000 and then somebody get, pays us 60000 for a kidney. They have it regulated, so it's, it's a fair exchange. It, it's also fair to say, even with the market in Iran, they don't do a lot of transplants. They do some kidneys. It's not like uh, they have the capacity to do so, but I wouldn't say it's an extendable analogy to here. It's a different sort of situation. We also have one article uh, in the, the fourth chapter of the book where a uh, Islamic law scholar looks at the idea of presumed consent and how you can reconcile the idea of taking an organ without someone's direct consent and Islamic law. And essentially the conclusion that he draws is that the the altruism of it and helping others and the necessity for organs that we have is enough to outweigh the necessary consent of the donor. You probably find another Islamic scholar who oh, absolutely. No disagree, no. just, like, just like Rabbi. Yeah. Yeah. But in the, in the Jewish tradition, you can do a lot of things to save a life. And I think that was the approach of this Islamic scholar. These, this is a life-saving technology. It might be uh, more problematic if it wasn't life-saving. So I think that was the just the article. Thank you. There was another question that I think was Um, I was, you just raised this issue of some transplantation being life-saving and other transplantation being not so life-saving. My own brother received a point, um, which is clearly in the not life-saving, but tremendously life-enhancing category. And I wondered if you could comment on how this distinction between the life-saving and the life-enhancing is playing out um, in the discourse about transplantation. I know people are transplanting hands now, um, and faces, and I think you could make an argument that there are very, very powerful, um, potentially life-saving psychological reasons. We, have, we actually had this debate in Florida 25 years ago 
with an Orthodox rabbi and myself and some of the uh, medical examiners in Florida. And the, the rabbi's argument was, this indirectly can save a life. If a person is blind and uh, you know walks out in the street, they're going to get killed. But if they have a cord in, they can see again, they're not going to get killed. So, you know, I think you could say for any body part that it's potentially life-saving. If you can come up with one that's not, then I think the Jewish tradition would probably be concerned about that. But as far as this Orthodox rabbi is concerned, I go. Uh, by the way, yes, uh, in the next edition, uh, we just had an article in September Journal of Medical Ethics on quality of life versus life-saving and transplant, so I just uh, wrote one with a philosophy guy at NYU, so I've been thinking about it a lot. But the example I have is uterus. So transplanting a uterus doesn't do much for you except it lets you have a baby, right? And presumably... Um, it's really done to allow you to undergo the experience of carrying your child. You're going to have to have a C-section because a transplant isn't strong enough to sustain the forces of birth. Um, so you're going to donate uh, or get a cadaver one. Both strategies are being talked about. And so it's real quality of life, and it's an interesting quality of life because you're going to take immunosuppressive drugs and expose the baby to them solely for the experience of carrying your child, meaning you could hire a surrogate. By the way, even in Iran, you can hire a surrogate. You can't do it in Sunni countries, but you can in Shiite ones. Um, so, is that ethical? Um, you know, here we're, we've got risks. we got um, a, a problem with the C-section that you're going to have to go through. What you do is you put the uterus into the person who doesn't have one or had it removed. You give them drugs to prevent its rejection. They have the C-section, and then you take it right out so you don't have to give them uh, immunosuppressive drugs anymore. So it's it's a lot of operations to get this experience. And yet there are four babies that have been born in Sweden, and there's a University of Miami program gearing up for cadaver-sourced uteri. I find myself thinking I have a hard time here with that level of risk, with that level of experience, but I'm waiting for some feminist ethics to tell me I'm wrong. Um, I think I have one over here and then I'll come back over here. Okay. So, um, could you speak to, or do you speak to, perhaps in the book, the um, question of folks who have committed uh, in a chain, for instance, altruistic chain, they've committed to give a kidney uh, once their loved one gets one for whom they're not a match, and then they get cold feet. Or, Otherwise, change their mind when it comes time. I know we don't talk about it in the book. That that is a really interesting concept. But you have two sides to that question. The first is you have to accept that the person has gotten cold feet. There's nothing. You're not going to strap them to the operating table and take out their organ. It's illegal, not to mention unethical. But you have to. They have autonomy to direct what happens to their body, but at the same time you have to look at what it does to the uh, recipient, not only in terms of their physical health, but in terms of their emotional health. Um, that's a really interesting I think actually topic. it didn't mention, that article didn't mention move, but what they'll do is try to find someone else who's yeah. a match, you know, until they, they plug up the hole if you will. So it's... it's Arnie, do you remember Shimpy McPhail that about Pennsylvania kids? Way, way long ago, uh, Mr. Uh, McFall, sorry, McPhail, needed a bone marrow transplant. And uh, his cousin, Mr. Shimp, said, I will donate to you. 
And then Mr. McFall got himself irradiated, killing his immune system, so he could take the new bone marrow thing. And Mr. Shipp said, change my mind, I'm not giving it to you. So they went to a court, emergency court hearing, and the judge called Mr. Shipp a lot of names, but was not forced and McFall died. So we've had the legal precedent. You can't force somebody. They can change their mind, even with the other guy, no immune system, ready to be, you know, completely vulnerable, going to die, did die. Uh, you can shame them, you can guilt them, but you can't force them. So you could lose a chain donor that way. I've seen people back out on the living thing, rarely, but I've, I've seen them change their mind, too. Um, and, As you Ken know, said earlier, this is a very well-organized, very complex system, and they really, I think, have people in the wings that they can pull in, in, in a situation like that. But it could be a situation where they couldn't. So, you know, that would be, you can't force, that. Oh, that's exactly right, you can't force the donor to, the supposed donor to change his mind to donate, but you probably find somebody who is in that uh, search group. They, they have a lot of data on computers on various people. That they can, uh, <laughs> seem outside the realm of possibility to be able to grow animals without brains, basically as organ sacs, for humans. I'm curious then, does, does animal rights become an issue in some of these experiments and proceedings we can Oh yeah, big time. <laughs> big time. One of the uh, uses of CRISPR that was just announced this week is that, you know, we don't have an animal model, it's not a transplant thing, but we don't have an animal model for autism. But monkeys were just made this week with autism-like disease to try and use them to study uh, autism. And I'm waiting for the backlash from PETA or somebody to say, what do you mean you're giving, you're making, not only are you experimenting animals, you're making sick animals. And what if you said, you know, we really want to learn about muscular dystrophy, so we're going to make hyper-sick muscular dystrophy animals so that we can learn faster of them. So while everybody's always interested in CRISPR and we're going to make perfect people or better people, the action right now is actually on animals. Now, I'm biased about this because there were two hearings in Washington in December. One was on CRISPR and Pete Newmans. You may have seen that in the news. And then there's the one at the Institute of Medicine that I chaired, which was on animals and CRISPR, which got no attention. But the animals are absolutely where the action is because that's what we're going to start with and know how to do. So, yes, there will be concerns about animal welfare. I don't think you have to make brainless animals. You actually want to make happy animals. So you want them to be unstressed and living a fine life and, you know, as thrilled as could be. Even having somebody born without a brain. Jim and I talked about the anencephaly. All of us talked about the anencephaly cases in humans. But not every organ is perfect when you're missing your brain. It means something else is probably not getting the right signals. So, oddly, the engineer animals are going to be the happiest animals until that sad day when somehow or another they're put to death in order to get their organs. One of my responses to this is to say, if you looked at the number of pigs, let's say, 
that we ate for breakfast relative to the number of animals we're going to use for organs. If I was an animal rights person, I'd be more interested in breakfast than I would be in this. But. Oh, so those people had library books. Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> so we are on a little bit of a clock, um, and uh, so I'm going to take the, the three questions. But um, but let me first say before you leave, as you as you leave, um, uh, the book is for sale. So and our our editors have agreed to sign. Actually, I didn't ask that. I just volunteered them, <laughs> but they'll they'll sign books for you. So, uh, so please do take advantage of that, and, and hopefully you'll be able to stay around and mingle with us for a few minutes afterwards. We have a reception as well. Um, Mike? Um, Professor McCartney, you mentioned uh, in your defense of the dead general uh, that some people have a fear that they will not get good, treat or good treatment because people want their organs, which is something that we do not do. It's an unfettered fear. But how would you reconcile this uh, with tenancy in people with for instance, the plans to, uh, or not the plans, the prop, uh, proposition that when someone dies in their home outside of the hospital to include with the ambulance being sent out, like preservation tools, where it will seem from the loved one's perspective that they are keeping them alive solely for the organs. And that's, and a, big that problem. that's a big problem, as Dan kind of mentioned. Uh, you have, would have to convince the family that this is altruistic and um, that, and Sometimes they might not even, you know, declare them dead. To, they would bring them to the hospital, but I think that would be just deceptive, frankly. I think you'd have to work with the family. But there would be some people, I think, that would do that. So, so my strategy was, got to be declared dead before you start to preserve and split the decision about preservation from the decision about, I want to donate. Let that happen at the hospital where there's time and you can do whatever you want. Even if 50%, 60% of people said no, you'd still get a lot more potential donors than you get waiting for the ICU and the management of the brain dead. I mean, I'm not clinically doing that stuff, but I've watched it a lot. And man, it is just unusual to find an organ donor now. Just unusual. And to the, I personally really like the idea of splitting the decisions between preservation and donation because it's a lot easier, particularly in the field, to try and explain to the, the bereaved family and relatives, whoever's there, that what you're doing is not in any way going to return the person to like you are ma merely maintaining <coughs> biological homeostasis, basically keeping the body biologically functioning, the heart beating on a uh, pacing wire, having the bags to keep them breathing, breathing just so you are maintaining. Essentially, you're Pumping them full of ice water is really what it is, it's what an ECMO machine does. But you are just maintaining that such that you can move them. And I think that if you can make that a much more clear distinction and not saying, well, we're going to do all these really horrific things to the body just so that we can go chop it up later, you are going to get a lot more um, consent. Yeah, you're going to get a lot. By the way, one other odd fact, if you allow preservation, you are having, to some extent, of check on whether they're really dead. So, you know, EMTs do pronounce people dead in the field a lot. I'm not saying they, for a lot of the reasons that people are dead out in the world, they're obviously pretty dead. You know, they have a giant boulder hit them in the head, and sort of, they're dead. But if you were nervous about it, and I'm not trying to work this into the approach, but you could at least say, you know, 
one of the taxes, we're going to take them to the hospital now, and they're preserved, and we'll reconfirm their death when we get there. It's not like... Uh, and then they'll pro pronounce it neurologically <laughs> and parents of families. Well, crazy. They're not dead. <laughs> Look at that. That's the problem. I think we need to start. So, um, can, we, can we take the last few, or...? transplant on demand is China. China generates almost every one of its organ donations by killing prisoners on demand. So you say, I need a liver, and I need it in the next three weeks, that's when I'm going to be there. Well, they're not waiting for car accidents, yeah. right? They've got to go find, uh, you know, Dan in prison and take his blood type and then kill him, <laughs> shoot him in the head most likely, and then his organs go to you, the visitor. So I have strong feelings about you know, whether I would advise somebody to go do that, I'm not going to lie and say it doesn't, it's not possible. But you're really almost promoting a pretty bad practice. As a physician, I can tell you that no doctor is going to say go to Hospital X and Country Y and get your liver transplant yeah. because of the liability issues. Yeah. It goes wrong and mm -hmm. you don't know why. But oddly enough, what is uh, interesting to me is that. Uh, suicide tourism is actually far more organized and yes. safe, which has been a practice. Before Go to Switzerland. Switzerland or Belgium. Before physician-assisted suicide was passed in the United States, people who wished for aid in dying could go to basically these mega hospitals in Belgium, Switzerland, and a few other countries, and you pay a fee up front, they pump full drugs, and that's it. But One last quick question. That'll be brief. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed your talk. It was very informative and inspiring to see the students um, doing research. Um, my question has to do with the, uh, I was very persuaded by your uh, discussion of recompense for those who are donating organs and whether or not they're going to happen. However, I thought the counter argument, which I'm sure you've heard before, the counter argument being that we already have um, low income, um, marginalized individuals donating blood plasma for profit. We have them persistently in research studies. Um, compensated and sometimes having them at high compensation levels um, or mortality rate even when they're regulated by the IRB. And finally, we've got a surrogacy. Surrogacy is currently legal in the United States and this can be anywhere from $10,000 on up. Um, and surrogates body incurs um, a, lot, a great deal of stress and um, permanent sometimes damage. And there is also tourism for surrogacy where uh, the global south countries people are um, uh, it's split. So my question is the quantification of the body. Um, does it, can, uh, is it necessarily taking place in other places? And if not, isn't this a chance to institute price brackets 
and um, to um, avoid a black market scenario as with surrogacy. So it, it's interesting on surrogacy that I would then jump in, but just this week, Nepal and India decided to ban commercial surrogacy. Too exploitative, too abused, it was just a mess. So uh, there's backlash. We don't have it legally banned at New York State. It is legal in a couple of U.S. states, but most are neutral right now on the issue. So there is sort of churning going on about how far you want to commodify. In reference to the, the commodification of the body in terms of research and stuff like that, there's a bigger difference in that those are significantly safer than the risks incurred in uh, transplantation. Uh, blood plasma, donating blood plasma has essentially no risk and you just pay for it. And uh, these trials that are being run are stage two and three trials where you're looking at dosage and a drug that you've proven to be safe in the human model already. So you, you're incurring far less risk by doing that compared to transplantation. But the other thing, and I, I really do say this in the least judgmental way possible, <coughs> is that those people who would be exploited by the system more often than not, and this is actually something one of our articles talks about, don't have organs that you really want to take. The, the, the way everything lines up, these are also the groups that are high, uh, more affected by things like hepatitis or other chronic diseases that would disqualify them from organs anyway. Uh, so. One last irony point in your favor. Um, we do uh, allow plasma. You can sell your plasma. You can't sell whole blood in the U.S., because there were health issues. The plasma, you can heat it up, you can kick it around. It's pretty tough, so you can kill most of the infectious, all of the infectious agents that are in it. However, Europe banned plasma sale, so you can't sell your blood or your plasma. The irony is that all European plasma is imported from bot plasma in the US. <laughs> As the person who ran the Advisory Committee on Blood Safety and Availability for this country for four years, I can tell you, they ain't got much plasma in Europe, so they rely on the market here and then ban it there. It's been a strange. <laughs> this was a wonderful discussion. Um, thank you so much for being such a wonderful audience and, and, and lively. I hope you continue with the cheese and and, um, and buy the book. Buy the book. If you buy the book, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're not against all forms of commercialization. <laughs> <laughs>